Let's turn in our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, we'll begin reading at verse 16. And we've looked at verses 16 to 20 last week, and today we'll look at verse 21. I will not be leading the Lord's Supper this afternoon, but uh, we thought that this verse would be appropriate as we come to the Lord's Supper, as we think about the truth of verse 21. Second Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 16, the Apostle Paul says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of our Lord. Let's pray for his blessing. Our God, we thank you uh, that you sent your Son, and we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the bread of life who came down from heaven. We thank you that you feed us and you give us eternal life, and we thank you that we could come to your word, which feeds us, nourishes us, and gives us life as it draws us more to you. And so we pray for you to give us your Holy Spirit uh, to help us to listen well, help us to understand your truth, and we pray that it would cause us to worship you. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would glorify Christ as you are sent to do. And so we pray in his name. Amen. Well, Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, as often... As you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The observance of the Lord's Supper is meant to be partly, and one of the most important parts of it, is that we remember and we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You could say that the Lord's Supper is a visible sermon. It's a visible sermon. As you look at the fruit of the vine, the juice in the cup, and you see the reddish purple color, it is there to remind you of the blood of Christ that was spilt. As we look at the bread and hold it in our hands and stick it in our mouths and chew it up, it reminds us of the flesh of Christ that was torn for us and for our sins. 
the Lord's Supper is a visible and a tactile, uh, you feel, uh, not the literal Christ, but it is meant to draw you to Christ as you remember who Christ is and what he has done for you. But along with the visible sermon, there is to be an audible sermon. You are to have the word of God preached, and we shouldn't separate those two. Uh, in the old t- ancient times, like in the Old Testament, when they would make a covenant, they would often uh, announce the covenant and the terms of the covenant, the conditions of the covenant, the blessings, and then they would seal it with a sacrifice, seal it with a meal oftentimes. And so this is the pattern that God has given us, that we are to announce the new covenant. We are to proclaim the new covenant with words and then have it sealed to us as we take the Lord's Supper. And the terms of the new covenant are not all the conditions that you have to meet, but what God has already done in Jesus Christ, that Christ has accomplished our salvation. And so we have the visible and the audible sermons. And Paul says that you are to proclaim this as often as you eat and drink it. So there's supposed to be some frequency, isn't there? We're supposed to do it somewhat often. He doesn't tell us how often, but somewhat often. We are to have the visible and the audible sermon together. And so, it seems that Paul is trying to tell us that we, as Christians, need to be constantly reminded about what Christ has done. And Jesus has given us a meal so that often you can be reminded of what he has done. And I know that for the most part, I'm talking to many Christians here. And so I trust that today you will not find it tedious or maybe even boring to hear again about what Jesus has done on the cross. Because Christians are supposed to be often reminded of what Christ has done. A man named Frederick Leahy wrote a little book called The Cross He Bore. And he writes about the Garden of Gethsemane. And he has this line that I have never forgotten. He says, Lord, forgive us for reading about Gethsemane with dry eyes. Forgive us for reading about Gethsemane with dry eyes. And that's how I felt as I came to verse 21. Lord, forgive us for reading verse 21 with dry eyes. Forgive us for looking at this and saying, I've heard that already. I understand what that means. And we sit through another sermon with dry eyes. We're not going to try to manufacture tears or anything, but we know that as we come to verse 21, we need to remember again and have God impress upon us again what Christ has done. And so the verse here is pretty simple to lay out. We see that there is one who knew no sin, 
that this one was made to be sin so that we, number three, we could become the righteousness of God. Paul has been going through, starting in verse 16, the context of what it means to be constrained, compelled by the love of Christ. And you notice how many times he's mentioned Christ so far, verses 16 and 20, that we're new creations in Christ, that God is reconciling us in Christ. We are ambassadors for Christ. Uh, God is appealing to us on behalf of Christ. It's all about Christ and his love that compels us to do all these things, Paul's saying. And then we get to verse 21, and this is the basis of how he can say everything that he's saying. Because here is what Christ has done. And here's a very clear statement, one of the clearest places in the Bible that tells us, here's what Jesus did to save sinners. And it's that love that compels us to live for Christ. So first, we see that Christ knew no sin. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. We all have different Bible translations. Um, I think most of them are basically the same order, but yours might have a different order. There are different ways that, that people translated that you could say that sentence. You could put first, God made him to be sin. In my translation, the ESV, it says, for our sake first. But when Paul writes this, he actually puts what we're talking about here first. He puts him who knew no sin first. He who knew no sin, God made to be sin for our sake. And so it seems that Paul is intentionally putting this at the front. He's drawing our attention because he's been talking about Christ, the love of Christ, who we are in Christ. And now he's going to tell us, who is this Christ? Him. Him, the one who knew no sin, that Christ. That is the Christ that God made to be sin. And so when it says he knew no sin, it doesn't mean that he was not aware of what sin was. Like if I say, do you know the state flower of Wisconsin? And you tell me, I don't know. That's, you don't know. You, you're not aware. You don't know the answer. If you ask Jesus, what is sin? He can give you the answer. He knows what sin is. But when it says he doesn't know sin, it means he's not personally involved in sin. He doesn't participate in sin. He hasn't experienced sin for himself. Now, the sinlessness of Jesus is a pretty basic and standard doctrine. Uh, you should, should know that right from the beginning of when you hear the gospel. And so you, you, you've probably heard about that many times. It's very clear in the Bible. I'll give you a few verses. 1 John 3, 5 says, In him there is no sin. Hebrews 4, 15 says, He was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 7, 26 says, He was holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. And 1 Peter 2.22 says he committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. So this is pretty basic doctrine, but 
because it was talked about so often and from, from the beginning of the church, you would think that if someone could falsify that statement, they would have done it. You would think that would be pretty easy to prove wrong. Imagine Mary, if Mary is back in Nazareth after Jesus went up into heaven. She's sitting in Nazareth Baptist Church and the preacher says Jesus knew no sin. And she could come up to him afterwards and say, actually, there's one time when he was five years old, I told him to come and he ran the other way. And then it all falls apart and they stop telling people that Jesus was without sin. Or James, his brother, uh, the pillar of the church in Jerusalem, uh, he could have easily said in, in a sermon, yeah, there's this one time that I pushed Jesus when we were 15. I was 15 and I pushed him and then he got mad and he started rushing me and he pinned me to the ground. But there's no story like that. Peter knew Jesus very well. He was the, the leader of the disciples and Peter had, could have had one of his hot-headed moments and blown up and he could have seen Jesus roll his eyes at him and say, oh, Peter, again, again, you're, you're acting like a fool. He could have told about how Jesus was so frustrated with him. But we don't have any of these stories. Instead, we have continual, clear, constant teaching that Jesus knew no sin. So what are some implications of that? Why does that really matter? Well, we'll talk about just three as it relates to salvation. There are lots of other things we could talk about with sanctification and sin, but we'll stick to three here. One is that Jesus knew the full weight of temptation. Jesus experienced the full weight of what it was to be tempted as a human being. Maybe uh, you have done these kinds of exercises before, something like where you have to hold out your arms and you have to hold up weights and it's supposed to work on your shoulders. Well, if you hold up a weight for five seconds, you might think that you're pretty strong, but you're really not doing much exercise. The, the real test is how many times you can hold up those weights or how long you can hold up those weights. And in the same way, if you or I experience a temptation, but then we give into it five seconds later or five weeks later, then you haven't felt the full assault of temptation. You just know how to resist temptation for five seconds. And so imagine Jesus. Think about what Jesus endured. For every type of sin, for the, his entire life, he was constantly pushing against the weight of temptation. He had the strength spiritually by the power of the Spirit to fully resist for his whole life as temptation kept assaulting him and assaulting him. And it was because he resisted the full weight of all the temptations that you and I feel. He was tempted in every way, yet without sin, that he can be our Savior. Because he's like us. He's like you. He knows what your temptation's like. In fact, he's probably experienced it in a stronger way 
we might be able to say. And yet he did not sin so that he would be able to save you. The second implication related to that then is that, as Hebrews tells us, he is the spotless lamb without blemish. He is the holy and innocent, perfect sacrifice. And so he's able to pay for the sins of his people. If Jesus had sinned once, then every drop of blood that he would have spilt on the cross, every bit of torture that he would have experienced, that would have been exactly what Jesus deserved. It would have deserved even more than that for just one sin. And so the fact that he is sinless and yet he is still suffering, he is still being offered as a sacrifice. He's still bearing the wrath of God. That, that has to tell us that it was because he was bearing the sins of his people, taking what we deserve on himself. And then a third implication of him being sinless. It shows the severe justice of God. The strict, unbending justice of God. That's what I mean by severe God's justice had no exceptions. It was absolutely strict. A parent might uh, hear about or see that their child did something wrong, got in trouble with something. And because the parent has an affection for the child, the parent might want to assume the best about their child. They would never do such a thing. Or maybe there's a, there's a, a circumstance extenuating, there's a reason they did such a thing. Or, or they might be tempted to not give out the full punishment that that child deserves because, because we're humans and we're fallible, and so we want to hold back. And so you might think that as God the Father looks upon Jesus Christ, that he might be tempted to say, well, this is my son. He doesn't deserve this. I know that he's innocent, so maybe I'll just hold back a little bit. I know that he's doing this on behalf of others, so I will spare him a bit. And yet, that's not what God did. God did not spare his own son, Romans 8 says. And so that tells us of the justice of God. As, as God looks upon the sin that he has placed upon Jesus Christ. Even though it is upon Christ, his son, he says, I will not let up one bit. I will not make any exceptions. I will fully execute my wrath, even upon the sinless one. And so what that teaches us it's God's justice towards our sins. If God did not spare his own son, do you think that he will spare you and your sin? Do you think that your sin will not be fully punished? That you can somehow hide it or get away with it? That it's no big deal? That song that we just sang tells us, you who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature 
rightly. God will not spare any sin. He will punish. So these are some of the reasons it's important that Jesus knew no sin. But the second truth that we see here is that he was made to be sin. For our sake, verse 21 says, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. I want to say right up front, just to clarify any confusion, that this doesn't mean Jesus was a sinner, that he was made to be sin, that he became a sinner on the cross. And so whatever I'm about to say next, please don't interpret it in light of thinking that, that somehow Jesus became a sinner. Jesus still on the cross was the unstained separated from sinners, Lamb of God. So, what does it mean, then, that he was made to be sin? Well, you and I like to talk using words like, he was treated as a sinner. Or we'll say he is punished as a sinner. And actually, I'm going to be using those words as we go through the sermon because that's kind of the only way to be clear about what's happening. But that's not what Paul says. We always have to remind ourselves, well, what does the Bible actually say? Here, at least, Paul could have said God treated him as a sinner. But that's not what he said. He said, God made him to be sin. Not sins, not sinful actions, but sin. And he made him to be sin. We have a a similar wording in Galatians 3.13 when Paul says that Christ became a curse for us. He didn't say Christ was cursed. Christ was treated as if he was under a curse. Paul says he became a curse. So, again, what does that mean? I think two things that we can think about. First, it's talking about him as a person. The person of sin. I'll explain what that means. Now, when Paul says he made him to be sin... He's saying he's not treating Jesus as if he did sinful things. Not treating him based on sinful actions, but as a person who is a sinner. This is our problem. It's not just our actions, our thoughts, our words, but our problem is our nature. By nature, we have hearts that are polluted, hearts that are rebellious. The, the mind of the flesh is hostile to God. And that is how Jesus was treated. Not as someone who did some bad things or even a lot of bad things, but as someone who as a person is bad, a person who is evil, a person who is the embodiment of sin. Maybe you've heard the saying, we are not sinners because we sin." We sin because we are sinners. We are sinners. And so we needed to be punished as if we are sinners. 
And so Jesus, if he's going to be our substitute, he needs to be punished as a person who is a sinner ought to be punished. A person who is by nature rebellious and hostile. And so that's why Paul says he was made to be sin. Him. He was treated as a sinful person. And then, secondly, Paul is telling us about the intensity of the sin. So in other words, if you stole a dollar when you were 10 years old, you would deserve the justice of God. You would deserve an eternity in hell because you did something bad. And so if you were going to be saved, you needed Jesus to bear the full wrath of God for you stealing a dollar when you were 10 years old. But that's not what Paul is only saying when he uses this word sin, made him to be sin. He's saying that Jesus was looked upon or treated as someone who had the full guilt of all sin, all the sins of the people of God. All that the Father gave to the Son, he put the full guilt of the full sin of all the hostility upon Jesus. John Gill says it this way. He says, Jesus was treated by the justice of God as if he had been not only a sinner, but a mass of sin. A mass of sin. You know, the mass, like all, all that makes you up, all the inside, the inside of you full of sin, all the outside of you covered in sin. So you're not just being treated as someone who stole a dollar once. You're treated as a man whose mass, whose total makeup is nothing but sin. Or Martin Luther put it this way, that Jesus was treated as the maximal sinner. The max sinner. We see pictures of this when Jesus is crucified. Uh, he is exchanged for Barabbas, who was an insurrectionist, probably a murderer, probably murdered soldiers and politicians. And Jesus is exchanged. He's the substitute for his release. We see Jesus on the cross being crucified beside two thieves as if he was the thief, he was the criminal. And these are all just pictures of what, what Jesus was doing under Roman law, taking the place of others or, or experiencing the punishment that others deserve. But then we, we apply those pictures to the wrath of God that as Jesus was hanging upon the cross, he fully bore the wrath of God for all of his people. And so he was treated not just as a murderer, but as the worst murderer. The mass, the maximal sinner, the, the maximum murderer. Treated not just as a thief, but as the worst thief. And then we can go on with every sin the worst adulterer and idolater and coveter and rebellious and liar and deceitful. 
Jesus was treated as being the worst of all of these. There's a lot of wickedness in the world. If, if, if it was appropriate, we could, we could go around and we could talk about all the things that we've heard about that wicked people have done. And you hear about them and you say, those people should face justice. And in this life, they, there isn't really any justice for the horrible things that wicked people do. Jesus is treated as someone who did the worst of all these things that you've ever heard about. Treated as if he'd done all of them. He was the mass of sin. Maximal sinner. And why was he treated this way? Why was he made to be sin? Well, Paul says, for our sake. For our sake. Because as a substitute. He was treated this way to take on himself the wrath of God that God's people deserve. God could pour out his justice upon Jesus Christ so that our sins can be paid for. So, for you, what this means is that it doesn't matter what sin you've committed. That God can forgive you in Christ. Doesn't matter if you're the worst of the worst. Jesus was treated as the worst of the worst. It doesn't matter how frequently you have sinned. It doesn't matter how often you come back to your sin. Jesus Christ was treated as the mass of sin. Fully covered in sin. Inside and out. And so there is nothing that you have ever done that could keep you from coming to Christ. And so Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He doesn't say that there's an exception there. The only thing you need is to have a burden and you can come to Christ. He doesn't say, but... Not the really, really bad people. Or not the people that really, really keep going and going and going with their sins. He says, all who are weary and heavy laden. And Jesus says in John six thirty seven, All that the Father gives to me, the ones whose sins the Father has placed upon Christ, will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I will in no way cast out whoever whoever comes to me John Bunyan wrote a book about that verse he says this but I am a great sinner say you but I will in no wise cast out says Christ but I am an old sinner you say but I will in no wise cast out says Christ but I am a hard-hearted sinner you say but I will in no wise cast out says Christ But I am a backsliding sinner, say you. But I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I have served Satan all my days, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I have sinned against light, say you. But I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I have sinned against mercy, say you. But I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I have no good thing to bring with me, say you. But I will in no wise cast out 
says Christ. All you need to come to Christ is to feel your need of him, to feel the burden of your sin, and he will not turn away because he was the maximal sinner treated as one on the cross, because he was treated as the mass of sin. Nothing can keep you away. So he was made sin, who knew no sin. But for what purpose? Paul says it's so that we can be made righteous. Let's read again. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that, so that, there's the purpose, so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. It's not just that Jesus dies and he takes upon, takes your sins upon himself. The purpose of doing this is so that we also might become the righteousness of God. This is what people have called the, the great exchange. It's the best deal you could make in your life. The best trade. You give your sin to Christ with all its punishment and guilt. And he takes it and he gives you his righteousness. This is the sweet exchange. The great exchange. That he would take our sins and then that he would give us his righteousness. And this is what we need. We need the righteousness of Christ in order to be pleasing to God and have eternal life. Maybe you've heard the saying, uh, a bumper sticker, I'm not perfect, just forgiven. I'm not perfect, just forgiven. Well, the problem with that saying is the word just. It's not that you are just forgiven in Christ. You are forgiven, and that's great. But you're also righteous in Jesus Christ. That's what we needed. That's what Adam failed at in the garden. Our confession says that, that God requires perfect, personal, perpetual obedience. And so God wanted Adam to be personally, perfectly, perpetually obedient. And he failed. And so for Adam to have this obedience, he would have uh, entered into this state of, of eternal life or eaten from the tree of life. He would have had the, the right to the tree of life, and yet he failed. And yet Jesus comes to live a perfect, perpetual personally obedient life. Jesus says that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, well, that's a problem. I'm not righteous. And if Jesus dies on the cross and he pays for my sins, well, well, great, my sins are paid for. And I have a, I have a debt that I owe to God and now it's been cleared at the cross, but I have, I have zero dollars in my account. And apparently I'm supposed to have like millions of dollars in my account. My righteousness needs to exceed the scribes and the Pharisees to, to be in the presence of God. How's that going to happen? So there, there are two things that happen on the cross. And when we have faith in Christ, 
Yes, our debt is paid for. That's forgiveness. He, he takes our sins and he pays for it. But that's not all he does. He also lives a perfect life and obeys his whole life, including on the cross. And that righteousness, perfect, perpetual, personal obedience is credited to your account. John Owen says he suffered in all his obedience and he obeyed in all his sufferings so that his obedience can be yours. Now Paul says here we become the righteousness of God. And so there's a parallel with Jesus being made to be sin. And so if we can say that Jesus was treated as a mass of sin and as the maximal sinner. That's what it means here with the righteousness of God. You are treated in Christ, not just as having some righteousness, but as a mass of righteousness from inside and out, all around you, that all of who you are is righteousness, maximal righteousness, perfect righteousness. Now, again, just like Jesus didn't transform into a sinner at the cross, he was treated as one. You, when you're saved, you're not transformed into a righteous person in yourself. You still have sin. But that's not how God looks at you. He doesn't see you that way. He sees you as a mass of righteousness. Because he sees you in Jesus Christ. Christ comes to you. Uh, as Calvin says, clothed in the gospel. And he gives you his clothing as you receive Christ. So we are to remember the death of Christ and proclaim his death until he comes. Through the word preached, we are to hear about the death of Christ and through the visible sermon. This is what God wants for you. If you are in Christ, he wants you to understand how he sees you right now. He wants you to know more of Christ. As you remember the gospel, as you see the gospel displayed in the Lord's Supper, he wants to give you Christ. Spurgeon wrote a hymn about the Lord's Supper. And I'll conclude with reading what he said. Amidst us, our beloved stands and bids us view his pierced hands, points to the wounded feet inside, blessed emblems of the crucified. What food luxurious loads the board when at his table sits the Lord? The cup how rich, the bread how sweet, when Jesus deigns the guests to meet. If now with eyes defiled and dim we see the signs, but see not him, oh, may his love the scales displace and bid us see him face to face. Our beloved comes to us. He stands among us today. He wants us to see him face to face, spiritually speaking. So that you know that he who knew no sin 
was made to be sin for your sake. So that in him, the beloved who stands amidst you, in him, you might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your eternal, unending love. Father, Son, and Spirit, how you have done this great work to redeem us, your people. Help us to see again and to know again, to taste and see that the Lord is good, to believe again in our hearts the grace of Jesus Christ. Help us to love Christ and worship him for his immeasurable grace, we pray in his name. Amen.